If you're taking notes this morning, uh, the title I've given this morning's message is Christians Honor Christ with Their Conduct. Uh, And just how you live uh, can be honoring or dishonoring to the Lord, but Christians are to honor Christ with their conduct. And the first way in which we see this worked out uh, is in verses 1 through 3. Christians honor Christ by loving one another. And he gives us three specific areas in which loving one another can exist. And the first is the most uh, broad and general. Uh, But verse 1, notice again, continue in brotherly love. Uh, The word continue, it just means you're already doing it. (laughs) Don't stop doing it. He's not like, hey, start this thing that you haven't been doing. Uh, This foreign concept, uh, it's something they had been doing. And again, it's something they were in danger of leaving. they were in danger of not continuing in the brotherly love. Uh, the word there for brotherly love uh, is uh, Philadelphia. Uh, we have a city called Philadelphia, of, known as the city of brotherly love. That's the reason why it's known for that. Uh, is it, it's in its name. Uh, and it's a different term than what is normally um, exhorted to believers. Uh, normally, believers are exhorted to love one another, but with a different word for love, and it's the, the word agape. It's the love that God has for us. Uh, it's also the same kind of uh, love that uh, a mother has for a newborn. Uh, it's a, a self-sacrificial and giving love. Uh, every newborn in my household uh, required self-sacrificial kind of love. <laughs> and that's the kind of love that God has for us. And it's even the kind of love that um, God encourages us to have toward one another. But this love isn't that love. It's a love that precedes that love. Um, The agape love would come out of this love. Um, In uh, 1 Thessalonians verses 4 uh, through, uh, sorry, 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 9 and 10, he says, but concerning brotherly love, uh, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. And so he's, uh, Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, is in the same vein, using a lot more words, uh, saying continue in brotherly love. But the brotherly love, it goes beyond, uh, it it can be expressed beyond just that, where it's a self-sacrificial agape love. But we can have brotherly love toward one another, and it's the kind of love that brothers have because they're family. So uh, in this sense, uh, that's what he's, he's using the term brotherly. Uh, it's anybody who's a part of any group, uh, whether large or small. If you're from a small family, uh, I have one brother, and uh, I expressed brotherly love towards him in a variety of ways growing up. Uh, but you could be uh, like my father was. He was one of nine kids uh, and expressing brotherly love to a bunch of different siblings. Uh, and the reason why uh, they were able to love each other in that way is because uh, their family. And the first encouragement here uh, for Christians to honor Christ by loving one another is a reminder that we're a part of the same family. Uh, We can call each other brothers and sisters um, because God has allowed each one of us to call him our father in heaven. Uh, And so uh, just like your siblings, uh, we didn't have the choice to choose each other. I know my, my extended family, or even uh, my family, uh, when I was first introducing my wife uh, to 
my side of the family, uh, she got a, a broader picture of what it meant to be a novello. <laughs> and uh, uh, she was thankful that she got me as opposed to any, <laughs> any of the other uh, novello options that were out there. Um, but uh, we don't choose our family, um, but we can choose to love our family. And they were at a point in their walk with the Lord of not being there for their family, of not continuing in brotherly love. Earlier exhortations from the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 3, verse 14 in Hebrews, uh, the author said, um, but exhort one another daily while it is called the day, lest any of you be hardened as through, uh, through the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, the encouragement there is that uh, we need each other to exhort one another unless, and if we don't, uh, we're at risks ourselves of having hearts that are hardened towards sin. Later on in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, he said, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much uh, the more as you see the day approaching. Uh, that need for brotherly love to continue comes through in our encouraging and exhorting one another, and that only happens when we're in contact with one another. Um, I know uh, that at times uh, in my own family life that there was uh, points of higher communication and lower communication, and uh, it was weird when I was uh, just about ready to move out. I was living at home, and even though I lived in the same house as my parents, we never really spoke that much, and then I moved out. Not far, just, you know, in the same town. I was just living in an apartment with my brother. And uh, I talked to my parents every week for like an hour and a half, which was an hour and a half every week, more than I had done before. And it's because I knew that we weren't communicating because we weren't in the same house. How could we be communicating? And the, the false assumption was that while we were in the same house, we were connecting and communicating, and we weren't. And that's, that's what he's warning against here, is he wants us not only to be in the same space, but actually connecting with one another. That, uh, you know, in the same way I was checking in with my parents for an hour and a half <laughs> each week, even though we lived in the same town, but because I knew we hadn't, I made it a point to. And it's that kind of familial love, love that you would have within a family that he's encouraging here, that we need to uh, begin with before we even start expressing that agape love. He encourages them beyond just brotherly love, uh, love of the family that you do know, to love the family that you don't know. Notice what he says there in verse 2. Do not forget to entertain strangers. Uh, it's an interesting uh, word that's given there. Uh, the word there, to entertain strangers, is one word in the original language, and it uh, starts the same way as the brotherly love. Uh, so if Philadelphia is um, from the word phileo, and uh, the Greek word for uh, brother, that phileo love is that um, friendship kind of love. Here, he combines that first word, uh, phileo, with a word that means stranger. So stranger love. Uh, we would normally translate that uh, hospitality. And in the context of these three verses, he's talking about those who are strangers to us and that we don't know who they are, but that they are a part of the body of Christ. So think about coming here on your first Sunday morning. I'm not sure what your first Sunday morning experience was like. My first Sunday morning here was a long time ago. I was in junior high, and uh, I, I, I don't remember it at all. 
there was a season for when my parents were here that a lot of people, the first person they met was my dad because he's just very outgoing and likes to meet new people all the time. Uh, uh, entertaining strangers is what my dad does for fun. Uh, he gets to uh, work in sales, and sometimes he enjoys his job so much that when he's taking time off, he misses it. Uh, it's not the paperwork, it's the people work that he likes. And what um, the author of Hebrews is encouraging us to do here uh, is to not forget to uh, entertain strangers or to be um, hospitable or to be welcoming. Uh, this is something that, uh, for those who are leaders in the church, is a requirement of leadership. It's being hospitable. It's the same word that he uses here. And it's uh, something that all believers are also encouraged to do. Romans 12, verse 13, uh, it says, distributing to the needs of the saints and given to hospitality. That is, looking out for those who are new. If somebody is new and they come into this place, would they say uh, that we have forgotten to be hospitable? Or would they be like, no, this is very, like I was welcomed by everybody, you know, I was, you know, I didn't feel like I was on the outside looking in. And uh, in a time when uh, these believers were being persecuted, uh, when life was hard, uh, it's easy to forget to be hospitable uh, when, when it's not easy uh, just to live. And he's saying here, uh, don't forget to be hospitable, uh, to, to entertain strangers. And then he gives a reason. He says, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Uh, in the Old Testament, we're given a couple examples of that with uh, Abraham, uh, who uh, welcomed in the angel of the Lord and two other angels before they were on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he, he convinced them, like, no, you got to come in, you got to stay here. And then even when those angels had gone into Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot said, you can't stay out here. It's not safe. You stay with me. He was hospitable to them. He was looking out for them. He didn't know who they were. He didn't know that they were angels. He was just like, it's not, this is not good for you. Let me, let me express love for you, even though you're a stranger. And Jesus would say uh, that those uh, who genuinely followed him, were those who were hospitable. They, they took in strangers. They fed them, the help, they helped those who were in need, and they were confused by that. Like, Lord, when did we do that? He's like, when you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. And there was others that are like, Lord, when did we see you, like, in need, hungry and naked and cold and, and needed to, and like, we never saw you do that. And he's like, even as you have done it unto the least of these, uh, not done it to the least of these, you've not done it to me. In the Old Testament, uh, when the nation of Israel was being brought out, the Lord reminded the nation of Israel to be hospitable to strangers uh, because they were once strangers in a foreign land. And he was like, you were once on the outside wanting to be on the inside. And you know what that's like. And because you know what that's like, you need to remember that so that you don't forget to be hospitable to those who are on the outside. And regardless of whether they're an angel from heaven or uh, just somebody who's a fellow believer who's in need, uh, we are to remember, we are not to forget to, uh, to be hospitable to, towards them. Another group of people that can be easy to forget, uh, he tells us to remember there in verse 3. He says, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. Uh, 
a variety of things, but he, he does hear what he says. <laughs> he repeats himself, but in a way that's not uh, repetitive. First he says, don't forget. Now he's saying, remember. Uh, so remember to not forget, and then you'll be fine. Um, but the second group of people are people who are believers, who are out of sight, um, but he wants us to not have them out of mind. And it can be easy for those who are out of sight to be out of mind. Uh, in a country like ours, um, as, as hard and as bad as things are going, they aren't nearly as bad or nearly as hard as they are going and have been going for quite some time for believers around the world. Those whose uh, lives are at risk when they share the gospel, those who are in prison uh, for being a member of a church. The, these aren't believers who lived one, at one point in time. These are believers who are alive now. And his exhortation to uh, us is that we would be mindful of them. The illustration he uses is as if chained with them. Like that's how mind, like if you were chained to somebody, would you be mindful of them? Probably. <laughs> like every time you forgot, you would be reminded, right? Like, oh, yep, you're, you're still there. <laughs> and the reason why he wants us to have this mindset is because of how uh, God views us within the body of Christ. Notice how he concludes there. He says, since you yourselves are in the body also. Uh, God views us as one body, and he wants us to identify with the sufferings of fellow believers when they're suffering for living lives that are, have been faithful to Christ, because Christ identifies with our sufferings. Um, if you recall, in the book of Acts, chapter 9, the Apostle Paul, before he became the Apostle Paul, was the persecutor Saul, uh, same guy, different name, uh, and he, was, he had letters in his hand to persecute the church in foreign cities. He was on his way to Damascus. The Lord stopped him. Do you remember what the Lord said to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting the church? That would have been accurate. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul's response was, who are you, Lord? He's like, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Let's not forget that part. <laughs> I'm not going to let him off the hook. Who were the people that Paul was persecuting? Well, physically and functionally, it was the church. It was the people. But Christ identifies with his body so closely that anyone who lays a hand on his bride, he equates to laying a hand on him. The author of Hebrews here is encouraging us to view each other in the same way. If we're a part of the body of Christ, uh, the other parts, if they're suffering, we're responding. Uh, if you're walking around your house at night trying to keep the lights off to not wake up anybody and you stub your toe on something, one part of your body is suffering. And if the rest of your body is responding appropriately, <laughs> you're hopping up and down trying to be as quiet as you can while you know, crying out in pain. <laughs> ah. <laughs> one part of your body is rebuking the other part of your body. Why did you do that? You're so stupid. <laughs> said the toe to the leg. <laughs> and the other part of the body is like, we agree. <laughs> That's the appropriate response. When uh, Paul writes this uh, encouragement to those in um, the book of Romans, uh, to the Romans, he says, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Being mindful of those we may not even be able to be present with 
can be as hard as entertaining those who are present that we are not mindful of as well. But the only way we can do either one of those commandments, because there are three commands that are given here, continue, do not forget, and remember. The first commandment is different than the second two, though. And it's not obvious in the English translation we have, but in the original language, it's, it's pretty clear. The first commandment is uh, given in the, uh, in the singular. That means he's just talking to you as an individual. Continue in brotherly love. That means show up and be present. The second two commands aren't given in the singular. They're given in the plural. Commands that are given to everybody to do. But hear me on this. You can't fulfill the command that everybody is to do if you don't show up as an individual first. And so the first command is to continue. You've got to be present to play. (laughs) But then when we're here, we need to play as a team that's not forgetful and remembers those who are on the outside wanting to be on the inside. Christians honor Christ by loving one another, uh, by continuing and by not forgetting and by remembering. Secondly, uh, rapidly moving on to verse 4, Christians honor Christ by living within God's boundaries for marriage. Christians honor Christ by living within God's boundaries for marriage. Notice there in verse 4 what he says, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. First, I want you to notice that uh, what he says positively about marriage, he says marriage is honorable uh, when it is uh, undefiled. The Bible holds uh, a very high ideal for marriage. Uh, This isn't something that's a social construct that we just made up because we thought it would be good and uh, helpful for society. Uh, This is something that God created uh, before the fall. Uh, When when God was making everything, everything was good, good, and very good until he saw a man by himself. And then he said, it's not good for man to be alone. And so God created for the first man, uh, the first woman, And the two became one flesh. He officiated, if you would, the first marriage ceremony. He commissioned them, and he he gave them instructions that didn't even make sense to them at the moment, but would make sense for every generation after them. He said, you know, I'm doing this so that when uh, a husband and wife come together, they would leave their father and mother and be joined together. Now, Adam and Eve had no father and mother physically. (laughs) That wasn't helpful information for them, but for every generation after them, it would be. God had a standard for marriage before even the fall. God wanted a husband to lead his wife. He wanted the wife to be his husband's uh, helper. That's how and why he made them together. Uh, The marriage is important to the Lord because it is a picture of what his relationship is like with us. Uh, In scripture in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that as a a wife is supposed to submit to her husband, as a husband loves his wife in the same way that the Lord loves the church and the church is to submit to the Lord. It's very important to God uh, how marriages are run. And there are two ways a marriage can be run, a way that is undefiled and a way that is defiled. 
Uh, and the world's very confused about this right now. Uh, to be honest, it's always been confused. It's more confused now. Um, but he says, it's when it's undefiled, it's something that's honoring to the Lord. But there's lots of ways to do it wrong. Uh, there's lots of places in which uh, what is supposed to be sacred in marriage, uh, he calls it the marriage bed, uh, sexual unity. Uh, the way my youth pastor described it to us youth when I was in youth group was uh, as fire uh, is good when it's in a fireplace. Uh, fire anywhere else in your house, not so good, <laughs> right? Uh, it, it, when it's in its place and it's functioning as it should, uh, it will warm the whole house without burning it down. Uh, but when you take the fire out of its place, um, it is, it's just not good. And he describes what would defile uh, a marriage uh, there in the second part of verse 4. And he says, uh, uh, fornicators and adulterers. Fornication and uh, adultery is what would defy, uh, defile a marriage. Fornication is engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage before you're married. Uh, adultery is um, engaging in sexual activity with somebody other than your spouse. So you're married to somebody, but you're sleeping with somebody else. Uh, these are things that are defiling to a marriage and dishonoring to the Lord. The part that should grab our attention is right there at the end. This isn't just something that def is dishonoring to the Lord and defiling for our marriages, if that was, would be bad enough, but it's something that God takes so seriously that he himself is the one who's going to judge it. He's going to judge it because those things are bad things that the Bible calls sin. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither notice, fornicators, nor idolaters, nor, notice again, adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. They're all sins. And just like the rest of sin, whatever the sin is, it separates us from God. And if that sin is lived out persistently and unrepentantly, that will separate us from God forever. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. God will judge this sin like he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. In Jude chapter 1, verse 7, it says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. This isn't something that's light. It's, it's something that's weighty. It's meaningful and significant to the Lord. The Bible would go on to say that uh, sexual sin is different than other kinds of sin in that it is a sin against the body. That is, it, your body is going to bear the consequences of that. You, you, you may be able to be forgiven for that sin, but your body is going to still bear the marks of that sin. In the same way that I can drive my car recklessly and I might be able to be forgiven of that, but if I get in a car accident, the car is still going to be wrecked if I'm driving recklessly. Like I, there might be forgiveness there, but the, the, the work of the sin, the impact of it is still going to, going to remain in the here and now. The Bible, speaking to believers about this in particular, 
has a very clear word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. Uh, Paul writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passions of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in this manner, because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testify. If this is like one of the very few places where God tells us what his will for us is as believers, and it's our sanctification, specifically in how we conduct our lives with our bodies in particular. And, and God takes it so seriously. He, he says that he's the avenger of those who take advantage of one another. Now, before I leave this point, I want to uh, read one more verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We stop short of a very important verse because sometimes when we're talking about these things, some, some people have the wrong idea about this sin compared to other sins. So if I've engaged in this sin, then, then God never wants me. I'm, I'm completely lost. This is the unforgivable sin that I've done. I'm going to read the first part of it again, but 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicator, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. None of those things will keep you from God's kingdom when there is repentance. And there is repentance for those things. We have a great privilege of being able to turn from those things. The world who doesn't know God, that's, the, that's just the things that they do. That's just the way that it is. But for those of us who call the Lord our Lord, we live our lives according to his standard. And when we fail to meet that standard, we can repent. We can be washed, we can be sanctified, and we can be justified. And that's a great privilege that we have. This is not the only sin that will separate you from God if unrepentant. All the other ones will too, but this is the one he's focusing on. When we honor God in our marriage by allowing the marriage bed to be undefiled, we're going to stand out as being different. Uh, I know growing up uh, in this world uh, that I was different. Uh, well, I was different for a variety of reasons. Um, in this regard, I was just different. All of my other friends, and they were doing what the world does. But when we honor the Lord in this way, he is glorified uh, as the Lord of our life. Christians honor Christ also by being content. Of all of the things we've talked about so far, uh, we're going to probably talk about one of the most <laughs> un-American things uh, 
contentment, uh, the opposite of which is presented to us in verse 5 through 6. He says there again in verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Do you know what covetousness is? it's, It's simply the ungodly desire for more, wanting more than what God has given you. Have you ever wanted more than what you had? Yeah, 10 minutes ago. <laughs> uh, that's like every commercial, that's the intent, is to want you, want you to want something that you don't have. <laughs> so like, here's this amazing thing that you can't live without, and we have it for sale, five, e- five easy payments, right? Covetousness is wanting more than what God has given you, or the ungodly desire for more. It was the 10th commandment, that struck directly at the heart. All of the other commandments are outward and observable. You can see somebody murdering somebody else. You can uh, hear somebody taking the Lord's name in vain. Uh, But the last commandment, you shall not covet your neighbors and then you fill in the blank. That is something that happens in the heart. That is the commandment that Paul said that without the law, he wouldn't have known that that was a sin But that was the sin that undid him. Because you know what? You can have the rest of your life dialed in. You're like, I haven't murdered anybody. haven't committed adultery with anybody. (laughs) But there's still covetousness in your heart. Wanting more than what God has given you. Jesus warned those who were following him in uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Luke 12, 15, he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. It's one of the things that you could probably track down and find, watch these videos of people who went from not having anything like us and how we would define not having anything uh, to having lots and lots and lots of money and then them talking about things. They're like, I thought it was in the things. I have the things, it's not in the things. I know poor people who are content, and I know poor people who are discontent and covetous. I know rich people who are content, and I know rich people who are covetous. The problem isn't in the abundance of the things. (laughs) The problem is a heart problem. We want more than what we've been given. And for the believer, this ought not to be. Not be, because there, we don't have the car that we don't have and we, we still want, but because of what we do have. Notice from the negative command of let your conduct be without covetousness, he says, let it be uh, content with such things as you have. And of all of the things he could mention, there's one thing that every believer has. And he defines it for us, which is super helpful. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you are a believer, you have the Lord. If you have the Lord and you have a discontented and covetous heart, what you're saying about the Lord is that he's not enough, is that he's not good and he doesn't know how to give good gifts. Is that what you want to say? If we believe that God is good and that he knows how to give good gifts, 
And that beyond that, he is with us and he is for us. Notice what the right response to the Lord is saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The right response is that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There is great gain in, in godliness with contentment. There is great gain when there is godliness with contentment. Paul writing to Timothy says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 6 through 10, he says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can take nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. This is almost, I, I was watching uh, some videos of these, you know, celebrities who had all this money after not having money, and that's what they kind of say. Like, you know, it's, at some point when you have a house, you just need a nice kitchen, <laughs> someplace to eat your food, you know, a bedroom to sleep in. And then if you have any other hobbies, you know, rooms for that, but you don't really need, you know, these, all of these rooms and all of these spaces for everything. It's like, it's, 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 you know, he said, I, I, it's just a house. <laughs> he was coming to the same, not a believer at all, but he was coming to the same conclusion. Food, shelter, basic needs, be content with these things. The danger is on the other side, Paul continuing, he says, but those who desire, notice it's the desire, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drowned men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. All of the get-rich schemes out there, they're aimed at covetous people. <laughs> you want to get rich quick? Here's the easy way that nobody's ever discovered that I'm going to share with you for free. Whether it's telling you to do things that are illegal or telling you you can do these things if you just walk away from having God as the Lord of your life. The consequence can be straying from your faith piercing yourself through with many sorrows. Godliness with contentment, that is great gain. The good news about contentment, if you weren't naturally born with it, which if you were born, you weren't born with it, um, is that it can be learned. Paul, writing to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, he says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, Though surely you did care, but you lacked opportunity. What he's talking about is you, you've provided for me financially. And he's like, not that I, I, you, you didn't want to do it before. It's just you lacked the opportunity. You had the opportunity. Now you're providing for me financially so I can be a little bit freer to minister to the Lord. But he, he gives a commentary on it. Uh, verse 11 in he, uh, Philippians chapter 4. Not that I speak with regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned to both be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. 
What he was saying is, I know how to be rich and godly. I know how to be poor and godly. I've learned to be content in whatever state the Lord has me in. I'm going to be content there because that's where the Lord has me. But he said he had to learn how to do both of those things. Uh, for my very first car was a, uh, two th- uh, no, a 1997 Geo Metro. They're a little egg-shaped car. Uh, super inexpensive. My, my parents bought it for my brother and I. And uh, we were sharing the vehicle at the time. And so I was volunteering here at the church. Um, and every once in a while, um, I wouldn't have a car. And so there was another uh, couple in our fellowship um, at the opposite end of the um, income level. So I was at GeoMetro level. They, they had a spare, um, what was it, um, some kind of luxury car, uh, a spare Cadillac. They had a spare Cadillac of the same year, 1997. And uh, because they were out of town and because I needed an extra vehicle to do some things around here at the church, they just let me borrow their spare Cadillac. And uh, my GeoMetro didn't even have a, a tape deck player. It just had a radio, just a radio. That's it. No, nothing else. Just AM, FM, done. Their car, uh, it took me about five to ten minutes. I can't remember exactly, but it took me about five to ten minutes to figure out how to turn the volume up and down on their CD player, tape deck player, and all the other things they could do in, you know, 1997, uh, it was on the steering wheel. <laughs> I had to learn how to abound. <laughs> I already knew how to abase. <laughs> but even, even the abounding took learning. How to be a faithful believer, it, it will require you to learn when, when the income is low. But even if the income increases, it will take learning there to be content with the Lord. So whether you're abasing or abounding, you can learn to be content. And the reason is because you have the Lord. Paul would go on to say uh, a, a verse that we all know, and that's the context, is I know how to be abased, I know how to abound, I have learned how to do these things because I can do all things through Christ who, who strengthens me. That, that phrase, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is used in the context of learning how to be poor and content and also in context of learning how to be wealthy and content. It's Christ who enables him to be content in those situations. You know why? Because it's not the money that's here today, gone tomorrow, and even if it's there tomorrow and I die tomorrow, it's, it's staying here and not coming with me. I can be content not because of what I have, but because of who I have. I have a heavenly father who can give me anything he wants at any time he wants. Uh, for a long period of my life, I didn't have money for any of the things that I did. The Lord did them anyway. Like I went to uh, overseas for school. I went on a couple foreign mission trips. I had zero money for any of it. Uh, and the Lord provided for it. Uh, this was a, a topic of conversation on my first date with my wife. I'm like, I'm poor and I don't plan on changing that. She's like, well, I've learned to trust the Lord. I'm like, well, that's good because that's required. <laughs> if you're gonna, if this is going to go beyond our first date. Um, but having the Lord as our helper, what a joy. Uh, a phrase that's been near and dear to my heart for this last couple of months is this phrase right here, this verse right here. The end there, uh, of verse 6, the Lord is my helper. The Lord said to his people earlier, 
Deuteronomy and uh, the beginning of Joshua. Um, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear. Uh, do not be afraid. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Jesus, at the end of his life to his disciples, Matthew chapter 28, verse uh, 19 and 20. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Lord is with us. And as a believer, you need the Lord's help. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing, which means you need the Lord's help. Again, Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. We neither help God nor hinder God in God's work through our lives. When I first came to the Lord, I was like, Lord, what, what do you want me to do? These are my gifts. And he's like, I want you to do this. I'm like, but I can't read. I want you to read in public. <laughs> this is a terrible plan, Lord. <laughs> I want you to go to graduate school where all you do is read. I'm like, I, this, you got the wrong brother. <laughs> the normal Christian life is one in which you will always need the Lord. Before the fall, Adam needed the Lord. Adam had a need that only the Lord could satisfy for a wife. In the perfect world, before the fall, there's no sin in needing the Lord. That's how it was before. The normal Christian life isn't where the Lord has given you enough in your bank account so you can trust your bank account so you don't have to trust the Lord. The normal Christian life is, it doesn't matter what you have in your bank account, you have the Lord. And you need him, regardless of what's in there. And you have him. Sometimes we as believers want to have enough to where we don't have to need the Lord. And that's just not how he's designed it. He's made us to need him. But here's the good news. If you're a believer, you have him. I don't know what's ahead of you this week, but I know who's with you. As believers, we go from one hardship to another, but not alone. We are encouraged to continue in brotherly love. We are there for each other. When we're on the outside looking in, hoping that somebody would be hospitable to us, the love of God is expressed to us through others. But regardless of that, the Lord is with us. If you're a new believer, you're a part of God's family. What's happening in your life is meaningful to me as your brother. It hasn't escaped God's notice. When we suffer for Christ's sake, we are seen by him. And sometimes that's expressed through his body. If you're a new believer, uh, how you conduct your sexual life matters to God. You can honor or dishonor the Lord with how you conduct your life. If you've transgressed his commandments, there's forgiveness. But if you persist in it, there's judgment. 
And God is deadly serious about these things, but he's, he's warning and he's serious about these things because he cares for you and he loves you. The normal Christian life will require you to need God's help. And you, if you haven't yet, you can learn to be content with Christ. If you're a mature believer, uh, keep on loving the body of Christ. Be a model of welcoming other believers that you haven't met yet. Be mindful of those uh, who are suffering and weep with those who weep. And if you're mature, are you still content with Christ? In your last trial, did you look to Christ as your helper? If you're not a believer here this morning, uh, God is the judge of all sin. The wages of sin is death, but he provided his son to die in your behalf. Uh, there is a washing, a, a sanctifying, a justification for you in Christ. You don't have to bear the weight of your sin apart from him. And God has given you a life that's hard on purpose to drive you to him. And that hardship of life is not ever going to change, but his presence with you can. I'm going to invite the uh, worship team back up. If they're here somewhere, yes, maybe, there they are. All right, I'm going to invite them back up to lead us in a closing song. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for you. God, we need you, and thank God we have you. Father, we thank you for not only you as our Father and our Helper, but Lord, we thank you for this family of believers that you've given to us. Lord, that uh, we can see and be seen, uh, that when we weep, there are those who will weep with us because we're a part of your body. Lord, let our lives be honoring to you, uh, especially uh, in how we conduct our lives uh, with our bodies in this world. Lord, I pray that each one here, Lord, in the next trial that you have for them, that they would remember that you said you would never leave us nor forsake us. And in that trial, instead of crying out to some other thing, they would say, oh, Lord, help me. Because the Lord is my helper. Father, we thank you for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.